Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Jonathan Bates, co-founder and head of revenue growth programs at Thormund, who are specialists in helping enterprises scale up and family businesses increase sales through effective marketing. Jonathan, hello. Hi, Matthew. Good to be speaking to you. Well, thank you very much for coming on the program today. Now, uh, normally the show is entirely about leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, uh, we must start there. How has this affected uh, your organization? Uh, Well, rather perversely, um, it's actually been quite a good situation for us. And I always feel a bit guilty saying that when I know the hardship many other people are suffering. Um, But being a company that provides people with strategic advice on their marketing uh, and ensuring that they can drive sales at the best possible value, um, it's been a good opportunity for us because um, obviously businesses are under huge financial pressure at the moment for how they can get the most out of their sales and marketing. Um, So it's a good opportunity for us. Also, we're fairly fortunate in that we have clients in the tech space and the online medical space uh, and some other sectors which are actually um, doing quite well out of the situation and the lockdown. Um, so, so I guess we're slightly bucking the trend and it's been, um, from a business point of view, a good period for us. Fantastic. Well, um, we should move on to leadership. That is why you're here after all. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Uh, it's a very good question. Um, I suppose for me, um, I grew up playing a lot of sport. Uh, and so when I ended up running teams and agencies and then set up my own company, um, I took a lot of learnings from the people I played sport alongside and, and what I thought was a good leader. Um, and I, the people that I always took inspiration from were the people who weren't afraid to get their hands dirty um, and people who would never ask you to do something that they weren't prepared to do themselves. Um, And I always found that very inspirational. Um, I suppose the challenge with that approach is then also learning to delegate. Um, And I think good leaders strike the balance between being prepared to get their hands dirty, um, but also knowing how to delegate. Um, And I think it's also a great quality is to know when you're not right. to, you've got to show strength and leadership and you've got to take a stance and opinion on things even when sometimes you might not be 100% on it um, but when the evidence and facts are clearly against you I think you have to show flexibility as well um, so the ability to listen and take on board other people's opinions and stances is very important too. Absolutely. Well, leadership is something that is very different in everyone's different circumstances. How would you describe your personal leadership style on a day-to-day basis? Um, well, as I alluded to there, I, I try to lead by example. Um, you know, I try to make sure that I, I think it's very important for a, a company or a business to have a culture and an ethos. And it's something that we work very hard with helping companies build their ethos and culture um, because ultimately you know, people when they're buying a product or a service it's more times or more often than not it's uh, that decision is based on emotion of why they want to buy something uh, and so people will engage with brands 
um, that you know, have personality behind them. And I think that personality stems from the top. Um, so I think you very much have to lead by example. You can't expect your staff and your team to deliver a product that you're not embodying yourself. So if you want to be very customer focused or if you very, want to be very personable, you have to do that yourself. You can't preach one thing and do, and do something else. So I suppose I, my example or my ethos would be to try and lead by example. Absolutely. Where would you say you developed your leadership style from? Did you have a particular role model or were you shaped more by circumstance? Um, well, I, said, I grew up playing a lot of sport, um, and I think that uh, for me, I, it was, I'm a huge advocate of sport for youngsters. Um, it teaches you to win. It teaches you to lose. Um, you have to win with grace. And you have to lose and learn from those losses. Um, and you play sport, both individual sports um, like tennis or golf, um, and team sports, but both of those you play alongside other people and you have inspirations. Um, generally, the older people in the team that you learn from and how they go about things. But then I was very lucky. My first job out of university, I worked in a very small um, PR and media firm, which was a father and son run company. Um, and the father was called Laurie Brannan. And he left school at 16 and built up a hugely successful business um and he was sort of semi-retired and very kind he spent a lot of time teaching and i suppose nurturing me in a way uh, for my professional career um and i said he always used to talk about how he wasn't very good at any one particular thing but he made sure he was above average on most things uh and you and i suppose that's something i've i've tried to take on board in my career is that I'm not world-class at any one thing, but I think if you add up the sums of the parts and I try to be as good as I possibly can be, um, then you'll end up doing a half-decent job. So, And I think part of that is continual learning. Um, of course. I mean, I'm a huge fan of podcasts, uh, constantly listening to those. Um, you know, so you can listen to two or three podcasts in a day and you will um, pick up a huge amount of knowledge that will then allow you to impart that on other people or affect um, how you run your business yourself. Do you offer any sort of mentorship schemes within your organization? Um, well, we run a continual internship. Um, so we have uh, sort of two to three months internships running um, throughout the year. And as part of that, they'll our mentoring schemes. So each intern gets assigned to a director within the business who's then responsible um, for you know, mentoring them. Uh, and each of the members of full-time staff will then be assigned to a partner uh, who will provide some mentoring for them. Now, when it comes to uh, leadership, one of the biggest challenges a lot of leaders have is dealing with conflict. Do you have a specific rubric that you follow when you uh, deal with conflict or resolve it? <laughs> uh, that's a very interesting question. I, so I would say that is definitely uh, my biggest weakness is conflict. Um, I absolutely hate conflict. Um, but obviously, as a leader, you have to learn to deal with it. And the more effective, um, the more the better that is. Um, I suppose what I've learned with conflict is to listen, um, and it's very much not to enforce your opinion onto somebody 
I think it's absolutely critical to listen. Uh, and I think it's very, very critical to uh, acknowledge what people are saying. You might absolutely fundamentally disagree with them. You might know in your heart of hearts that they are wrong. But the fact is, if someone else strongly feels something, then they need to be listened to. Um, so, and I think by often listening to people, repeating back to them what they've said, um, and then sharing your stance, then it um, helps. It's not always foolproof, but it helps create a culture where you can try to resolve things amicably. I think, you know, where you get conflict escalates is where you take a very dogmatic view and you say, no, this is the way it has to be. This is the only way. Um, and that will immediately create uh, friction and clashes. Um, so I think it's important to listen and take on board people's opinion and try to get them to understand why you think a certain way. So I suppose I think the word's probably empathy. I think you know, even if you, you um, don't see eye to eye with the person, you have to show empathy and understand why they're coming from that viewpoint. And hopefully they will then show you the respect back and we'll show you empathy and hopefully appreciate why you have your viewpoint or stance. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, Jonathan, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Thormund? <laughs> well, I wish we all had a crystal ball. Um, I think there's going to be even more uncertainty and upheaval with COVID. Um, so I think the way... We work with a lot of tech businesses, uh, and one thing I've learned from them is that they work in processes of rapid iteration, um, so they're constantly test, learn, and optimize. Uh, and I suppose with us, uh, you know, we, we've got a fairly robust solid foundation for our business, um, but we're really not trying to think too far ahead more than six months. We're just focusing on what we need to be doing now to deliver great work for our clients. Um, that's the most important thing. What what can we deliver in the next quarter, in the next half year for our clients that will deliver outstanding work? And then one eye on you know, what does the future hold in terms of technological development? Um, and what do we need to continually be learning so we can provide our customers with the best advice? Um, but I think, you know, as, as um, potentially the COVID situation might have a second peak or worsen, uh, I think people are going to need more and more strategic advice direction so uh, i foresee a very busy 12 months for us well jonathan i'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program today it's been a pleasure having you here uh, and of course we have to have you back when things hopefully get back uh, to some semblance of normalcy but for now jonathan thank you pleasure thank you very much for having me that was Jonathan Bates, co-founder and head of Revenue Growth Programs at Thormund. Now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of 
was it wasn't Marcus Viscotti who gave me that nickname. Oh. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, 
I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth test, test match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, Andrew, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm-hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th- there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job 
what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was, 
we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soul in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, Andrew, to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about 
legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers Um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so, numbers yeah i mean it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... uh, a very inclusive, if you're thinking about, think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f- for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary yeah. thing. Well, a lot of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, 
before we gave it, I'm conscious of the time, we, uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm gonna have to choose between either supporting a team base at the Oval or a team base at Lords. I i I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well surely it's gonna be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.